American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. So now I'm obsessed with time. Come on, tell me about the time. Had it all in my head tonight. Had the time of my life. When the words all come down, like blues on Tuesdays come down. Throw it all away. This is American. Welcome to American Timelines 181 Take 2. <laughs> See, we recorded this podcast already. We don't have to divulge. But we had technical difficulties. We tried to record it. We were at the beach. It was a vacation. Why Give us a break. Why do we have to divulge that? And we, we got to explain why it's late. This episode's out late. Everybody's be like, you're supposed to be every other Wednesday, you assholes. Okay. Although nobody probably cares when we do it. Maybe they do. Maybe somebody cares. Maybe somebody was sad. Maybe somebody cares. Maybe. Maybe. No, there might be somebody who looks forward to it on every other Wednesday, and this thing's broken, I think. Anyway, everything's going to shit. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And howdy-do to you, too. And now we're back. Thanks for being here on American Timelines and listening, listeners. So we went to Ocean Isle Beach in North Kakilaki for a spring break. Took the kids. Went with a friend, a beautiful, beautiful friend. Yep. Beautiful, cuddly friend that likes to fuck. Uh, <laughs> we got I had a pool and an ocean and overpriced food. Everywhere, yeah. Everywhere you go. Uh, and kids whined about being bored, of course. Anyway, but we're back. So we try to record it with our phones and that. Did not work very well. No. Stupid voice recorder app sucks. Uh, I wouldn't use that to record a podcast. And I wouldn't use that to record my farts, much less a podcast. That's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> but if you do want to record your farts, feel free to download Reaper, the best fart recording app, uh, software you can find. The side of the Mississippi. Yep, this side of the Mason-Dixon line. The other side has uh, all kinds of fart software. They only sell fart software. But So the difficulty here is going to be that Amy's not going to be able to react to things. I will, because I was... Because you forgot I was really stoned when we tried to... um, Oh, so you don't even remember anything, hopefully. Right, probably not. It'll all be like, oh, yeah. (laughs) I kind of remember that. Oh yeah, now I, this is starting to ring a bell. Um, okay, and then I also will be surprised at yours because I wasn't listening to yours right. very much. No, I know that. I was I trying, but yeah. I was very uncomfortable in that bed. I know. Yeah, we recorded in a bed, laying down in the buff. No, we were not in the buff. That's yeah. ridiculous. All right, we're gonna. We left off. We did January and February of 1955, and now we're gonna jump into March, y'all. All righty. Go for it. You ready to jump into March? Yes. So on March 3rd of 1955, Elvis Presley makes his first TV appearance ever. Okay, yeah. On a broadcast radio show, Louisiana Hayride. Elvis. I think the only thing we've talked about in the 50s so far was the whole thing about Elvis bombed at the Grand Ole Opry. And everybody said, don't quit your day job, and he sucked and all that. Yeah. Uh, you so, know, I think, he, I think he was a natural blonde, I think. Really? What makes you say that? Dyed his hair. Let's see. Let's see if I. Oh, and I gotta Google it. Well, while you Google it, let me move on to March fourth, when the first radio facsimile transmission was sent across the continent. The first fax. Did Elvis's carpet match his curtains? <laughs> that's the way to ask it. Oh no, that's not how. It... Now you're gonna get the interior of... design of all of Elvis's homes. Let's see. What would I ask? Maybe ask specifically if his pubes are... <laughs> We're blonde. Blonde. <laughs> That's probably the best way to find out. Why does Google want to use... Oh, yeah. What color were Elvis's what? pubes, maybe? Ask that. No, you made it... Hold on. Was Elvis a blonde? In his pubes. Amazingly, Elvis was actually a natural blonde until his late teens, and even after when his hair began to go darker, it wasn't naturally the shade we all know so well. Wow, thanks. 
Siri or Google lady or whatever. Yeah. So there you go. Now ask her about her pubes. I refuse. Okay. Well, I don't want her to think less of me. She. I don't think she can think. Although maybe she can. AIs are real now. March fourth, there was that facsimile. The first fax. Do, 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 do. Here it comes. The first facsimile. Nineteen fifty-five. That's a good impression. <laughs> <laughs> the first ever fax. What do you think it was? Was fax? It was somebody's. Anus hole. I hope so. <laughs> I hope it was an anus, but I couldn't. I tried to look on the internet. What was the first fax? What was it? All I could see is it was this date. So it's because it was X rated. Maybe it was somebody's mushroom stamp. It could be. I don't know. Yep. And then that opened the door for future sex communications and mushroom stamp communication. And dick pics. Like dick pics would have never happened. Yeah. How many dick dicks do you think were faxed before? faxing went away like do you think it was like texting like how texting is i just always have to assume that you have to put the lid down and that's what makes me nervous like don't well, you people's have, butts you, doesn't have the lid down it's just their butts so but if you had to if you wanted to xerox your if you wanted to xerox your dick you'd have to put the lid down smush it yeah so i'm not sure the best way to xerox your dick Anyway, that brings us to March 6th, 1955, when the Dutch premiere of Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot happened. Remember that play? And I will not, this time, yes. accuse Samuel Beckett of um, being a Trump supporter because That's right. On I the got last, him yeah, when we very recorded mixed it. up with D- David Mamet, and, and I don't even know if that's even true, but I didn't, right. did we look it up? Uh, we didn't. I looked up to find out that Samuel Beckett died in like right, eighties. Uh, so so way off. you were like, he's a big Trump supporter. Like that's odd because he died in nineteen eighty nine. So you were inaccurate when you randomly just screamed that out last time we recorded. But we could have avoided even talking about this and not making the same mistake if you just didn't say it. I know. But anyway, that was our. Recording that doesn't exist. That's right. Well, it does exist, but we're not putting it out. Anyway, yeah, waiting for Godot. That's a that was a good play. I think I was in was I in that or we did it somewhere. I don't know. Reading from it, March seventh, nineteen fifty five was the seventh Emmy Awards. Make room for Daddy, Danny Thomas and Loretta Young win are the big winners that year. Make room for Daddy. You like that show? Yes. Trump, it says here, Trump did a great job as president, David Mamet, on free speech. He became a vocal Trump supporter during his presidency, which can't have been easy in the Democratic stronghold. Wow. That's weird. March 15th, 1955, we got our first birthday, so hit it, Matt Truman and the motherfucking ego trip featuring Derek on drums, who listens to American Timelines. Really? The drummer for the Matt Truman ego trip. Really? His name is Derek. He is an American Timelines fan, and he actually, uh, I saw him at the Village Idiot in Toledo. You check them out, the Matt Truman Eagle Trip. If you're in Toledo, check them out. They're awesome. Anyway, he's a cool dude, and I used to work with his wife, and he told me that sometimes our audio sucks, and it sounds like it's engineered by an idiot who doesn't know what he's doing. And I said, it is engineered by an idiot who doesn't know what he's doing. Uh, Sorry, everybody, for our audio issues. We are... In Not other words, professionals. In other words, yes. Yeah, Derek is cool dude. Um, Derek Wright, I think his name is. All right. Um, but he might not want me telling everybody his name. Yeah, I know. Why are you doing that for? But if he's in the Matt Truman ego trip. But anyway, he's a cool guy, and I've been meaning to give him a shout out for a while because he's one of the one of the listeners. Yeah. That listens regularly. Hopefully he still does, even though the sound sucks and he told me it sucked and I didn't fix it. Uh, I know you But I do change it here and there. I tried to get criticism better. constructively, but then you didn't do anything about it. I may have. I've tried to I think about him every time I mess with the levels. See, but before we started, I just messed with the levels a little bit. Remember that? I turned yeah. your I can't reach where I got the dials for the headphones. It's, a light, it's first world first world problem. Well, and here. the big thing is I'm a half asser. Right. Okay. That's, I'm a half asser. That's the big part of it. I tape I duct tape everything, okay? Yeah. All right. All right, we got a birthday, so hit it, Matt Truman Ego Trip. <laughs> Amy, Amy hates birthday. Yeah, it's 
we have a birthday. We have an American singer, songwriter, and actor born in Astoria, Queens. Grew up in nearby Freeport, Freeport, Freeport. Oh my God, New York, and Baldwin, New York, both on Long Island. Graduated from Baldwin Senior High School. Their team colors are blue and gold. Home of the Bruins, and he went. This person went to school with Taylor Dane. Notable alumni, know. Taylor Dane. I don't know if they were at the same time. Remember Taylor, Taylor Dane? Yeah. I Tell it to my heart. Anyway, this guy's father, who would who was a retired New York State trooper, every day would say, what do you want to do with your life? And he was a Nassau County court clerk, and his mother, Marguerite, would not take it anymore. She was a retired art teacher. His father's Jewish. His mother's Catholic yeah. and of Swiss descent. And this gentleman is also of Ukrainian descent from his grandfather. Uh, as a child, he sang in a church choir, several school choruses, and the Baldwin High School Concert Choir. He may have sang, I Want to Rock, or The Kids Are Back, or Leader of the Pack. Oh, who was that? Or Be Cruel to Your School. Oh, some one of those... Or we're not going to take it. Oh, D. Snyder. D. Snyder, everybody, was born on March 15th of 1955. Went to the same school as Taylor Dane. Hello. Awesome. Taylor Dane, D. Snyder. Now you can drop that knowledge at parties. All right. Moving on. Listeners, please tell. If you're a true American Timelines fan, after you're listening to this, next person you see, tell them that D. Snyder... And Taylor Dane went to the same high school. Moving on down the road. They're home of the Bruins. Tell them that. March 16th, 1955. We've got a crazy thing that happened uh, regarding the NHL. Are you familiar with the NHL? You know what that stands for? Yes. National Hockey League. You're a genius. You're a huge sports fan. I know. Boy, this is a gingery beer. Um, So in 1955, the NHL president... Clarence Campbell suspended Montreal Canadian superstar Maurice Rocket Richard for the remainder of the season after he viciously attacked an opponent. And then riots ensued in Montreal. Wow. Like fans rioted because this guy got suspended. Yeah. So gist of it is the guy was known. He's a really good player. Number nine is one of the most famous players the game has ever had. Maurice the Rocket Richard. Wherever there's aggressive, smart, and fast, and the idol of Canadian fans. He was known for being easily goaded into fighting. There's another time you'll find Richard in the thick of it, when there's a fight. The rocket follows fireworks and fisticuffs like a kid follows a brass band. I don't know about you, but anytime I've ever played any like floor hockey in elementary school, it's just aggravating. Just trying to get that fucking puck down the thing so... I imagine ice hockey is more aggravating. It's it's a very aggravating thing. Like you're concentrating, you're concentrating, you're trying to get this goddamn pucking and barely stand up and you get it, finally get it. And some asshole comes by and hits it away. You're like, fuck, fuck you. It must be aggravating because that's they why they get fight fights so much. I think that's why they get in fight. It's so fucking aggravating. Like you're <laughs> trying to. It's like, uh, remember that game where you had a like, monkey in the middle or something? No, where you had to balance like an egg on a spoon. Yes. Like imagine you're. You're running with an egg on a spoon very carefully, and then some guy comes and grabs that egg away yeah. from you. How mad you'd be after, like, after you've already carried it yeah. 100 yards. You'd be like, fuck. Mm-hmm. So I, that's the only thing I think of why people fight in hockey so much. Hockey, the fastest game on earth. A story about a sport where rhubarbs and riots are part of the rules. In fact, fighting is so common, the rules provide that if you fight and draw blood, that's a major penalty. No blood, a minor penalty. Anyway, this guy, opposing players would always try to get this guy uh, to fight and stuff. And so uh, he did. And when they suspended him for fighting, because he had fought a bunch of other times, uh, fans got pissed. Uh, They were very upset. Uh, The next game that the commissioner guy, whoever I said, the president, uh, showed up to a a game. Campbell, who was no coward, came to the game as though nothing had happened. He got death threats, and he uh, 
Oh, at the next Canadians game, unruly fans pelted him with vegetables, eggs, and other debris. This was a cup match. But to the fans, the game was secondary to their feud with Campbell. Before long, all the surrounding spectators had fled, leaving the brave Campbells alone to face the angry fans. One fan threw a tear gas, tear gas bomb at Campbell, which resulted in the forum's evacuation and the game's forfeiture in Detroit's favor. Even when homemade bombs interrupted the action, the league president remained in his seat. At last, the police insisted on escorting the couple out of the arena, but that didn't stop the rioting. It was one of the wildest uprisings in sports history. Police arrested 74. 25 others were treated in hospitals for injuries, including Campbell himself. Rhubarb's on ice, they're old stuff. But you see king-size riots like this only once in a lifetime. So they were just so pissed at this guy and were taking it out on him, which was crazy. That is crazy. Windows and doors were smashed at the forum and surrounding businesses. They tried to get Richard, who was the suspended player. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did I say his name was? Maurice Rocket Richard to come back and quell the crowd, but he he said no. Really? Uh, he said nope because he thought he might further inflame the passions of the mob. So he took the radio the next day asking for calm. Do not do more harm. Do no more harm. Get behind the team in the playoffs. I will take my punishment and come back next year and help the club and the younger players win the cup. How did that work out? Montreal reached and lost the 1955 Stanley Cup Finals, four games to three, without Richard. The defeat was a bitter loss for Richard, who struggled to control his anger for the rest of his life. Really? He had an anger management problem, I eh? think so. I don't know. I didn't say for the rest of his life. I just added that. But yeah. there you go. It was an interesting thing. Yeah. The fans took it out on the president, the NHL president. Guy got pelted with eggs. At least it wasn't batteries. That's what they do in Philly. That would suck to be hit Remember with a that? battery. Didn't they hit D-cell Santa batteries? Claus? I think they hit Santa Claus. They with did. Batteries. They were hitting everybody with batteries. They played the pelt the black players with batteries. Oh my god, that's awful. Yeah. Well, now the very next day, we have a new person in the world. Another birthday. Hit it, Matt Truman Ego Trip featuring Derek Wright on drums, motherfucker. <laughs> Right, we have an actor, another actor born in Blue Island, Illinois. You know where that is? No. Neither do I. Son of Robert, a film editor, and Miles Sinise. Oops, shit. Uh, Gary Sinise. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Gary Sinise. Dang it. Thank God. What do you mean, thank God? I don't, now I can't go on about- The charade is over. About how he- he graduated from Highland Park High School in Highland Park, Illinois. We don't have to know any of this. Whose team is blue and white, home of the Giants. And now I can't tell you that no. Tunch Ilkin went to the same school as Gary Sinise. No. Tunch, Tunch motherfucking Ilkin. No. Little known fact, people can't say Tunch motherfucking Ilkin without saying motherfucking between the Tunch and the Ilkin. Moving on. Moving on past March 17th, since you don't care about Gary Sinise's illustrious career a lot of people tell me i look like gary sinise no you don't like a like a more stupid gary sinise no all right that brings us to march 29th 1955 and when we have clint eastwood's acting debut on film do you know what it is you know what film it's a science fiction horror film, Revenge of the Creature. His role was uncredited. It debuted in Detroit, Michigan, March 29th, 1955. Uh, Clint Eastwood appears as a lab technician named Jennings early in the story. He's shown having a discussion with Professor Ferguson. I feel like I've seen this on MST3K. You have? Yeah, it was on MST3K. Was it? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so in the in the part he's in, he accuses a test subject cat of eating a lab rat, only to find the rat in his lab coat pocket. Uh oh. They dared to bring him back alive from his haunts deep in the jungles of the Amazon. They dared to put him on display with the other denizens of the deep, while thousands came to marvel and wonder. You know, I 
I pity him sometimes. He's so alone. The only one of his kind in the world. If anything goes wrong, you head straight for the surface, you understand? All right, let's go. They dared to study him, to probe him, to tempt him with the lure of a woman's beauty, thinking that mere chains could hold in check the primeval forces that surged and roiled within this strange being from the dawn of time. So I did Google, because you can see this scene on YouTube, but also if you Google this movie, Revenge of the Creature, I think you can actually watch that MST3K episode on YouTube. Yeah, probably. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. So you remember it from watching it. That's yeah. Good. You're a good fan. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not like a, I can't name all of them or anything like that. No. I just remember seeing Clint Eastwood real super young, and he kind of looked, he, he just looked so weird. He kind of looked like David Bowie. I felt like he looked like a young David Bowie. Yeah. 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 And then March 30th is going to round out what I have for March. It's the 27th Academy Awards. On the waterfront with Marlon and Brando and Grace Kelly was the big winner mm-hmm. there, which I watched that movie and I it's bad. I just didn't do it for me. I've never seen it. Yeah, it's I don't think I miss it much. <laughs> it was neat seeing Marlon Brando in something other than Yeah. Streetcar Named Desire and I guess that. Fallen the Godfather, right? Isn't that what he's the Yeah, Marlon Brando. Yeah, and what's the movie he says I could have been a contender? Is that a boxing movie or something? Is that him? Could have been a contender. Is that him even? Uh, no, that's... <laughs> could have been a contender. I don't think that's Marlon Brando. Oh, now we got to look up who says that. Yeah, put my beer down. Who said I could have been a contender? Terry Mal- Terry Malloy. Played by Marlon Brando yeah. in On the Waterfront. Oh, it was in that. Oh, okay. It was in this. So there you go. You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Instead of a bum. I always say that. Every day I say that. Every day you do? Yeah, at work. Yeah. Uh, to people. Anyway. So there you go. All yeah, right. okay, so I was all all over the place, but that was what he was in. Mm-hmm. All right. April 3rd, 1955. We're in April now, everybody. We're comfortably in April. The American Civil Liberties Union, otherwise known as the ACLU, announced that it will defend Allen Ginsberg's book, Howl, against obscenity charges. Right. Everybody was up in arms about that poem, early, like the previous month, and I was going to... I don't know, redo a reading of it or something or get into it, but it was very long and I have a short attention span. This is not a poetry class. It's not a poetry podcast, but it's interesting. I started listening to him read it. There's You can listen to him read it on YouTube and I kind of like my mind wandered or whatever, but it's good. It's I'm sure it's really good and it's mm-hmm. whatever. So, But it was controversial at this time. I always need that kind of stuff analyzed for me. <laughs> Yeah, like somebody's tell me what they're saying. Like what their of, meaning yeah. is. It's just sometimes I get it, but sometimes I'm like, I don't know what that metaphor means. Yeah. We was kind of talking about class in society and mm-hmm. poor, poor versus rich a little bit, I think. So that's uh, so why people probably hated it. Um, and, of course, bad words. 1955. Right. And then April 10th. It's all to you because on April 9th, the NBA championship happened between the Syracuse oh. Nats and the Fort Wayne Pistons. And I only mention that because I can't believe there were Fort Wayne Pistons. Okay. So April 10th, we're to, to your murder. Yes. And I'm going, to, I'm going to listen to your murder. Okay. Take it over, Amy, you beautiful oh. blonde bombshell. I'm going to talk about murderous Ruth. Ellis, the last woman to be executed in England. Oh, so this isn't an American story necessarily. No, not today. Not today, Homer. It's a Homer. English story. English from England. Jolly old England. Night. Okay. So Chap- Ruth Ellis was born Ruth Nielsen in, okay. in Wales. Okay. That's where the Beatles, aren't the Beatles from Wales? Some of them? Oh, Aren't they Welsh? I, don't know. I think you're telling rumors. I'm probably again. wrong. I don't know. In 9th, October 9th, 1926, 
the fifth of six children. Okay. She moved to England with her family during her childhood. Wow. Her mother, Elizabeth, who Bertha is what the people called her. Bertha. Her mother's name is Bertha. Bertha Gerthels. Bertha Gerthels is her mother's name? Yes. Bertha Gerthels? Bertha Gerthels. Bertha Gerthels, y'all. Was a Belgian war refugee. Okay. Her father, Arthur Hornby, was a cellist from Manchester. Wait, Bertha's father or? No. Her father. Ruth's uh, father. Ruth's father was a what? A cellist. A cellist. So then in 1928, when she was two, yeah. Arthur's twin brother, Charles, was killed when his bicycle collided with a steam wagon. Who's Arthur? Her dad. Oh, her dad. His twin brother was killed when his bicycle was hit by a steam wagon? Yes. Yikes. And so then, according to Muriel, Arthur became physically and sexually abusive shortly after his brother's death. Wait a minute. With Bertha being aware of the abuse, but taking no action. Wait, because your twin brother got hit by a train, you got to start raping? I, it, there, I don't, there might not be a correlation there. That's oh, just that's the, how just the, what time, she noticed. the timing happened. Well, that happened, and then he became angry and started... The ugh. sexual abuse eventually resulted in Muriel conceiving a child by her father at age 14, which led Arthur to being questioned and ultimately released by police. The ugh. child, a son, was brought up as a sibling to the other children. Oh, my God. Wait, so... Her dad raped her. Yeah, and she, she had a baby, and, and they, they pretended it, it was a sibling. It was her sibling. Mm-hmm. That is disgusting. Then Arthur turned his attention toward Ruth after Muriel reached puberty, but Ruth continually resisted the abuse. Oh, God. So Ruth briefly attended Fairfield Senior Girls School in Bossingstoke, huh. leaving when leaving when she was age fourteen. Okay. She found work as an usherette at a cinema in Reading, Berkshire, oh. shortly afterwards. Then in 1940, Arthur moved to London after being offered to the live-in position of caretaker chauffeur for Porn and Dunwoody Limited, a lift manufacturer. He was a caretaker for a lift manufacturer named yes. Porn? And- Porn and Dunwoody Limited. Horn and Dunwoody is a lift manufacturer. Yep. And those of you Americans listening, a lift, as the Brits call it, is an elevator. The following year, while her older brother Julian was on leave from service in the Royal Navy, Ruth befriended his girlfriend, Edna Turvey, who, okay. who introduced her to what Muriel later called the fa- the fast life. Okay. So Ruth and Edna eventually moved to London and lodged with Ruth's father. He continued his abuse of Ruth while engaging in an affair with Edna. Which ended when Bertha made an unannounced visit and caught the pair in bed. Wait, who was Edna? Her roommate? Yeah, her friend. Uh, and he and it was a consensual affair yeah. with her dad? Bertha herself moved to London soon <sighs> afterwards. What yep. the hell? Then in 1944, 17-year-old Ruth became pregnant by a married Canadian soldier named Claire Andrea McCallum. She okay. was subsequently forced to move to a nursing hospital in Gillsland, Cumbria, where she gave birth to a son named Claire Andrea Nielsen, oh also known as Andy. So let's slow this down for the dumb guy. So she had an affair with a married guy. Yes. Got pregnant. And had a baby. And so had to go to a special place to have it because mm-hmm. that's how they do it then. And what so. happened to the baby? She had him. Oh, she kept it? Okay. I don't, yeah, I think. The father sent money for about a year and then stopped. Oh, then he stopped. Andy eventually went to live with Bertha, Ruth's mom, while Ruth supported the child by working in several factories. Oh, the child. Andy's the baby, the kid. Yes. Oh, so they sent him to live with Bertha. With Grandma. Bertha probably, Bertha Goebbels probably (laughs) enjoyed that. Hopefully she was a good grandma. By the end of 1940s, Ruth had become a nightclub hostess in Hampstead through nude modeling work, which paid significantly more than her previous jobs. Nude modeling can pay the bills, y'all. Morris Connolly, her manager at the court club in Duke Street, blackmailed his hostess employees into sleeping with him. Oh, gross. By early 1950, Ruth was making money as a full-time service escort and became pregnant by one of her regular clients. Oh, man. She had this pregnancy terminated illegally in the third month and returned to work as soon as she could. Okay. Uh, okay. On November 8th, 1950, Ruth married 41-year-old George Johnston Ellis, a divorced dentist with two sons, at the regular office, I mean at the register office in Tonebridge, Kent. Wait, November 8th, 1950, she married this? Yes. Former dentist with two kids? Uh, the same day that Jane Mansfield was born? Yeah. And Mary Hart? Wait, they can't be the same age, right? 
All right. Anyway, this, um, that's the same day. Off topic. And the same day. <laughs> the, All right. The first jet plane battle ever happened in the Korean War. Okay. Yes, she married this man, George. She married George, and I'm sure this will end happily ever after, and there will well, be no strife. Right? A, he was a regular customer at the Court Club. Okay. He was a violent and That's possessive. That's a strip club. Yes, he was a violent and possessive alcoholic who no. became convinced that his new wife was having an affair. Yeah. Ruth left him several times, but always returned. When she gave birth to a daughter, Georgina, in 1951, George refused to acknowledge paternity. They oh. separately they separated shortly afterward and later divorced. What a jerk. So then in 1951, while she'd been four months pregnant, Ruth appeared uncredited as a beauty queen in the rank in the rank film Lady Godiva Rides Again. She returned to sex work following her divorce from Ellis, having moved into her parents' residence with her daughter. Wait, sec does stripping count as sex work? No, she was doing sex work. She was work. also doing sex work. Yes. Okay. In 1953, Ruth became the manager of the little club. The Little Club, which was a nightclub in Knightsbridge. Okay. At this time, she was lavished with expensive gifts by admirers and had a number of celebrity friends. Ellis met David Blakely, three years her junior, through racing driver Mike Hawthorne. Okay. Blakely was a former public school boy who was educated at Shrewsbury School and Sandhurst. Shrewsbury? But was school? also a hard-drinking racer. A hard-drinking racer? Yeah, a race car driver. So, okay. Within yeah. weeks, he moved into Ruth's flat above the club, despite being engaged to another woman. Oh, boy. Mary Dawson, uh, is who's was the name of that other woman. Mary Dawson was probably not happy about this. So Ruth became pregnant for a fourth time, but oh had her second termination, feeling oh. she could not reciprocate the level of commitment Blakely showed towards their relationship. Okay. Ruth then began seeing Desmond Cusson, a former Royal Air Force pilot who had flown Lancaster bombers during the Second World War and who had taken up accountancy after leaving the service. Those are some interesting fellows she finds. He was appointed director of the family business Cusson & Company, a wholesale and retail tobacconist with outlets in London and South Wales. I'm a tobacconist. Ruth eventually moved in with Cusson okay. at 20 Goodward Court, Devonshire Street, north of Oxford Street. The relationship with Blakely continued, however, and became increasingly violent as he and Ruth continued to see other people. Blakely oh. offered to marry Ruth. She consented, but in January 1955, she had another miscarriage after he punched her in the stomach oh. in an argument. This poor lady's been through it, y'all. Yeah. So then on Easter Sunday, April 10th, 1955. Yeah, they, they, let me guess. They had a nice family church attendance, and then they looked for Easter eggs. Nope. She took a taxi from Cousin's home to a second-floor flat at 29 Tanza Road, Hampstead, okay. the home of Anthony and Carol Findlater, where she suspected Blakely might be. Oh. As she arrived, Blakely's car drove off, so she paid off the taxi and walked the quarter mile to the Magdala, a pub in South Hill Park, where she found Blakely's car parked outside. Uh-oh, she found him. At, at around 9.30 p.m., Blakely and his friend Clive Gun Gunnell emerged. Blakely passed God, Ruth Gunnel. waiting on the pavement when she stepped out of the doorway of Henshaw's, a news agent next to the Magdala. As Blakely searched for the keys of his car, Ruth took a thirty-eight caliber Smith & Wesson Victory model revolver from her handbag uh -oh. and fired five shots at Blakely. Now, was she mad? Because he left her? Yeah. Or he well, found her with like somebody else? Abusing her and yeah. leaving her and doing all that shit. Yeah. The first shot missed. Then Ruth pursued Blakely as he started to run around the car, yeah. firing a second shot, which caused him to collapse onto the pavement. Ooh. She then stood over him and fired three more bullets, Yikes. with one fired less than a half an inch from his back, leaving Ooh. powder burns on his skin. Shit. Ruth was seen to stand over Blakely as she repeatedly tried to fire the revolver's sixth shot, finally firing it into the ground. This bullet ricocheted off the road and injured Gladys Yule, a bystander who lost the use of her right thumb. Poor Gladys Yule. Ruth, in apparent shock, asked Gunnell... Will you call the police, Clive? She was... I had to make her sound like an old-timey actress. That's pretty good. She Clive was, Gunnell. She was arrested immediately by an off-duty policeman who heard her say, I'm guilty. I'm a little confused. Blakely's body was taken to the hospital with multiple fatal wounds to the intestines, liver, lungs, aorta, and trachea. Oh, my gosh. Originally taken in as evidence, the revolver is now in the Metropolitan Police's Crime Museum. Really? At the police station, Ruth appeared to be calm and not obviously under the influence of drink or drugs. Okay. She made her first appearance at a magistrate's court on April 11th and was ordered to be held in remand. She was twice examined by the principal medical officer who failed to find evidence of mental illness. 
She she had an EEG exam on May 3rd, found no abnormality. Um, while she was on remand, she was examined by a psychiatrist for the defense and one for the prosecution, and neither of them found any insanity at all. No, she was just... Mm-hmm. She was just made miserable by dudes her whole freaking life. So then on June 20th, Ruth appeared in the number one court at the Old Bailey, London, before Mr. Justice Havers. June 20th, 1955. The same day that... Uh, just, for, just skip it. Just skip it? It's yeah. uh, okay. The same day that American Radio Relay League has a bring your handy talkie to work day. All right, we're moving on. Same day that Almost Crazy opens at Long Acre Theater in New York City for 16 performances. How about that? Um, Ruth appeared in the number one court at the Old Bailey, London, before Mr. Justice Havers. She was dressed in a black suit and white silk blouse with freshly bleached and coiffed blonde hair. Her defending counsel, Aubrey Melford Stevenson, supported by Seabag Shaw and Peter Rawlinson. Seabag Shaw is someone's name? Yes. Seabag. Seabag. Expressed concern about her appearance and her dyed blonde hair, but she did not alter it, or she did not alter it to appear less striking, which good for her is yeah. what I say. The only question put to Ruth by prosecutor Christmas Humphreys. Christmas Humphreys is the prosecutor. Yeah, these names are uh, fabulous. This is the name story. It is. Um, what the only question he put to her was, when you fired the revolver at close range into the body of David Blakely, what did you intend to do? Her answer was, it's obvious when I shot him, I intended to kill him. This reply guaranteed a guilty verdict and the mandatory death sentence. Oh. The jury took 20 minutes to convict her. Oh. She remained at Holloway Prison while awaiting execution. She told her mother she did not want a petition to reprieve her from the death sentence and took no part in the campaign. However... At her relatives' urging, her solicitor wrote a seven-page letter to the Home Secretary setting out the grounds for reprieve. Lloyd George denied the request. Ruth dismissed Bickford and asked to see Leon Simmons, the clerks of solicitors, blah, blah, blah. Everybody wants to see Everybody Leon Simmons. Everybody wants to see yeah, that's right. So then, on July 12th, the day before her execution... Yeah, July 12th, 1955? She, got, she makes her will... They wanted her. She, they wanted her to tell her full story. Yeah. She asked him, "Don't please don't tell anybody what I say." Um, she didn't want her because she did not want what to use what she says to try to secure a reprieve. Okay. Because she, she wants to go. She wants to die. Yeah. But then the the lawyer refused about that. So she divulged that Cousin had given her the gun and taught her how to use it on the weekend prior to the murder. She also revealed that Cusson had also driven her to the murder scene. Following a two-hour interview, Michonne and Simmons went to the home office. The permanent secretary, Sir Frank Newsom, was summoned back to London and ordered the head of the CID to check the story. Lloyd George later said that the police were able to make considerable inquiries, but that it made no difference to his decision and, in fact, made Ruth's guilt greater, showing that the murder was premeditated. He also said that the injury to the bystander was decisive in his decision. We cannot have people shooting off firearms in the street. Yeah, you really can't have that. You Wouldn't it be nice if America had that same idea? Yeah, they should. In a final letter to Blakely's parents from her prison cell, Ruth wrote, I have always loved your, I have always loved your son, and I shall die still loving him. Wow. The Bishop of Stepney juiced the blank, <laughs> visited Ruth. Juiced the blank? Yep. He visited Ruth prior to her execution just before 9 a.m. on July 13th. The hangman, Albert Pierpont, and his assistant entered her cell and took her to the adjacent execution room where she was hanged. She was hanged on July 13th, 1955, Mm -hmm. the same day that Japanese actor Yoshitaka Tamba was born. And that's pretty much the story. That's it. Okay. That's a pretty good one. That was had some twists and turns. You know, well, yeah. You yeah. know, there's a moment there when she's shooting that guy mm-hmm. that you're just you're kind of rooting for her, right? Like I, I think. I mean, I, you mean, I root for her the whole time. I you just want her to. I mean, it sucks. It's she you know she it. was shooting out that hopefully probably she the had anger such a of shitty life of her father and all these. The guy was punching her in the stomach. Oh, I know. <sighs> With what women had to deal with, or still always have to deal with. I know it. Abusers are fucking shit. 
fucks. A-holes. It's that A-holes. Hey, don't abuse women, everybody. Abuse the A-holes. You're so dumb for All abusing right. women. All right. April 11th, 1955. We're going to finish up April here. Um, the the uh, There was a chartered Air India plane called the Kashmir Princess mm-hmm. that was bombed and crashed into the South China Sea in a failed assassination attempt on Zhu Enlai. Or Zhu Enlai, I think it's Z H O U, but I guess it's pronounced like Zhu Enlai. Zhu. Zhu Enlai. By a, a Kuomintang secret agent. Uh, and I think Kuomintang is a Chinese Nationalist Party, I guess. Yeah, it's a, it's a Nationalist Party secret agent. Uh, anyway, so the chartered India plane, the Kashmir Princess, was bombed crashing the sea because they were trying to kill this guy, Joe and L.I. It was damaged in midair by a bomb explosion uh, on route to Bombay, India. 16 of those on board were killed, while three survived. Mm. The explosion was assassin assassination attempt of this Chinese premier. Zhu and Lai was the first premier of the People's Republic of China, uh, Serving from October 1st, 1949 until he actually died in 1976. He served under Chairman Mao and helped the Communist Party rise to power. And later he helped consolidate its control, form its foreign policy, and develop the Chinese economy. They're not sure exactly all who were involved in trying to kill him, but they think the U.S. might have been involved because it would have been convenient for the U.S. to get rid of a communist. Right. Um, But... What they've discovered is that the Kuomintang, the Chinese Nationalist Party, was responsible for the bombing. Uh, The flight departed Hong Kong, carrying Chinese and Eastern European delegates, mainly journalists, to the Afro-Asian Bandung Conference in Jakarta. Uh, The crew heard an explosion and smoke quickly entered the cabin from a fire on the right wing, directly behind the number three engine. Upon hearing the explosion and seeing the fire warning light for the baggage compartment come on, the captain shut off the number three engine and feathered his propeller, whatever that means. He feared the engine would catch fire. Mm-hmm. This left three engines running, and the crew sent out three distress signals giving their position over the Natuna Islands before the radio went dead. Oh, no. <clears throat> captain tried to land the plane on the sea, but the depressurizing cap- uh, cabin and the falling circuits... Failing circuits. Blech. The captain tried to land the plane on the sea, but the depressurizing cabin and the failing circuits made that impossible. Additionally, smoke was seeping into the cockpit. Left with no other option, the crew issued life jackets and opened the emergency doors to ensure a quick escape as the plane plunged into the sea below. Wow. The starboard uh, wing struck water first, tearing the plane into three parts. The aircraft maintenance engineer navigator and the first officer escaped and were later found by the Indonesian Coast Guard. The remaining 16 passengers and crew members, however, Boy, I bet they had a story. at sea. The rest of them drowned. Yeah, that's a crazy story. Be interesting to see if you can find an interview, interview. with somebody. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so investigators believe that explosion had been caused by a time bomb placed aboard the aircraft by a Kuomintang secret agent who was attempting to assassinate that Chinese premier, Zhu Enlai. Mm-hmm. Uh, who had been scheduled to board the plane, but never did. His travel plans changed at the last minute, oh my allegedly God. due to an appendect- an emergency appendectomy he had to have. Um, so, Boy, that's that was luck. However, they think he didn't really have that. He just lied because he, he got wind of this assassination attempt. Mm-hmm. But the crappy thing is they think he just he knew it was going to happen and didn't warn anybody. And so all of his colleagues that were on the plane died um i hope that's not how that would be terrible they said he didn't want to yeah he didn't want to stop a decoy delegation of lesser cadres from taking his place um i guess so that's according to a september 1994 edition of the china quarterly written by steve sang of oxford university um so I don't know. That's mm-hmm. what happened. That's a crazy yeah. thing that happened. That is nuts. Assassination attempt. Crazy go nuts. And then April 11th, Marty, directed by Delbert 
Man and starring Ernest Borgnine and Betsy Blair premieres in New York City, won the Best Picture in 1956. Did you ever see Marty? No. It's pretty good. Ernest Borgnine does a great job. And I was just happy that back then the lead actor was not a a gorgeous man. It was Ernest fucking Borgnine, kind of a dumpy guy, and he's kind of... Well, with men, there always were leads like that, but... But he, women are the ones that had to be beautiful well, all the time. I think the woman he's with is kind of homely too. Like, it's kind of a, a homely couple finds each other, mm-hmm. and he can't ever. He doesn't think he lives with his mom. He don't think he's ever going to find anyone because he's kind of a chubby guy or whatever. But it's kind of a it's a good movie, I think. Okay, good story. Go over in Sport Nine. All righty. And then on April fifteenth, nineteen fifty five. I don't know if you know who Ray Kroc is. Yes. You ever heard of that person? Yes. Who is he? The guy who started McDonald's or stole the idea from the real people. and The McDonald's brothers? Yeah. I think he bought them out. I don't think he stole it. Oh. Uh, but yeah, he opened the first McDonald's uh, fast food restaurant in Des Plaines, Illinois in April 15th of 1955. Now... Technically, the McDonald brothers, Dick and Mac McDonald, who had moved to California to get in the movie biz, yeah. Uh, but instead, they started operating drive-in restaurants because they were really good at making fast, cheap burgers. Uh, their trick was: you don't ever specialize anything. Every burger is the same. Use paper products that you can throw away easily. Just make them real fast. They have fifteen-cent hamburgers. Anyway. Their restaurant's success led the brothers to begin franchising their concept, nine becoming operating restaurants. At the San Bernardino location, Dick and Mac McDonald perfected their speedy service system, uh, and they had hamburgers, shakes, and fries. And The brothers sold 14 franchises, of which 10 became operating restaurants, not including the original location in San Bernardino. And then Ray Kroc, a native Chicagoan, who had left high school after his sophomore year to join the World War I Red Cross Ambulance Corps, uh, the war ended before his unit was sent overseas, though. And then he returned home, wanted to be a musician, and then oh. later started selling paper cups. In 1939, he became the exclusive distributor of the Multi Mixer, a milkshake mixing machine. Yeah. And so because he was working on this Multi Mixer. It's always broken. Yeah, it's always broken. He taught you from then on, always say it's broken. He visited the McDonald's brothers in 1954, which led to him becoming their franchise agent. So because... He visited them about his mixer machine, mm-hmm. and he was like, hey, I'll be your agent. Uh, and then he opened the first McDonald's east of the Mississippi River. Uh, so there you go. Yep. And now you know how why McDonald's started and blah, blah, blah. And then on April 18th, 1955, we have a sad occurrence and a strange occurrence regarding okay. the sad occurrence. Albert Einstein passed away. Oh, yeah. Plymouth. The car that's making news presents the Plymouth News Caravan. The excitement, the drama of today's news today. Produced for Plymouth by NBC. Messages of condolence have been flooding into Princeton, New Jersey since early this morning when the death of Albert Einstein was announced to the world. A scientific giant who sometimes generated political controversy as well as brilliant equations. Dr. Einstein died at the age of 76. I don't know if you know, though, that the physician who conducted his autopsy at Princeton Mm -hmm. stole his brain and took it home to perform research, for which he was ultimately fired after refusing to return the brain. Wow. That takes balls. It takes some balls. According to allthatsinteresting.com, an article inside the death of Albert Einstein and the strange afterlife of his brain by Marco Margaritoff. Uh, When Albert Einstein died, everybody thought it was syphilis, but it was not. He did not have syphilis, even though everybody always talked about Albert Einstein liked to fuck. Um, But on the day he died... His brain was notoriously stolen. Hours after he passed, the doctors who performed the autopsy on the corpse of the most brilliant man in history removed his brain, took it home without telling the Einstein's fa- Einstein family. Mm-hmm. His name was Dr. Thomas Harvey, and he was convinced that Einstein's brain needed to be studied as he was one of the most intelligent men in the world. Even though Einstein had written out instructions to be cremated upon death, his son Hans ultimately gave Dr. Harvey his blessing. 
as he evidently also believed in the importance of studying the mind of a genius. Mm -hmm. So Harvey meticulously photographed the brain and sliced it into 240 chunks. Ew. Some of which he sent to other researchers. And one he tried to gift Einstein's granddaughter in the 90s. She refused. Yeah. And a couple he juggled with. No, I just made that part up. Harvey reportedly transported parts of the brain across the country in a cider box that he kept stashed under a beer cooler. I guess he just fell in love with a piece. I have pieces of Einstein's brain. Yeah. In 1985, he published a paper on Einstein's brain, which alleged that it actually looked different from the average brain and therefore functioned differently. Later studies, however, have disproved these theories. Mm-hmm. Well, some it sounds re- like a nut. Though some researchers maintain that Harvey's work was correct. Anyway, according to this article, the case of Einstein's brain can maybe be summed up in this quote. He once scrawled across the blackboard of his Princeton University office. Quote, not everything that counts can be counted, and not everything that can be counted counts. Unquote. Hmm. There you True. go. True. And that's going to conclude this episode nice. of American Timelines by American History timelines. for Jerks. That's right. That we that was uh that was your March and April of 1955 and we now have Gary Sinise in the world and we now no longer have Einstein in the world and in, in this timeline. And, and now it's time to get out of here Chuck Berry. D Snyder exists now. Get out of here have Chuck s- Berry. Yeah, get out of here dude. Uh if you're listening, rate, review, subscribe, and next time you have sex, think of D. Snyder. Peace. Peace. Truman Ego Trip is the greatest band of all time. Buy their music.